Today's sermon title is HFMD. Is it on the screen? Not yet. But it's not what you think. It doesn't stand for hand, foot, mouth disease. Although it is uh, related to that uh, in, to some extent, as you will see later on. So what does HFMD really stand for? Stay tuned until the end of the sermon to find out the answer. Alright, let's go to God in prayer as we begin. Lord, hide your preacher behind your cross. Holy Spirit, come and do a work in our hearts. Open our hearts to hear you. And speak to us, Lord, in the deepest part of our souls. We commit today into your loving hands. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. First of all, a warning. There will be some uh, gruesome images of the crucifixion as we go along in the PowerPoint. Uh, apologize for that. But I think it only gives us a glimpse of the pain and horror that our Lord Jesus Christ had to go through some 2,000 years ago. Now, if you've been following the local news, one big news that uh, revolved uh, earlier this year, revolved around 14-year-old Benjamin Lim Chin Hui. Take a look on the screen. This boy, the student, had allegedly jumped off a ledge outside of his 14th floor Yishun flat on January 26, 2016. Earlier in the day, he had been picked up by the police and taken to the Amokyo Police Division headquarters to assist in investigations following an anonymous report involving the outreach or modesty of an 11-year-old girl. He was allegedly interviewed for more than three hours by the police before released on $2,000 bill. And shortly after returning home with his mother and sister, he locked himself in his room and allegedly jumped out of the window. Subsequently, mainstream and social media were abuzz with what happened. What could be better? You know, how policemen came in plain clothes, took him away. They wondered if he was allowed to eat and they wondered if there should be adult accompaniment. I'm not here today as a judge to decide whose account is valid or whether procedures were properly adhered to or to suggest that they should be changed. That's beyond my scope and ability to comment. What I want to say is that shame whether real or imagined, can be, and often is, a powerful driving force. Shame, whether real or imagined, can be, and often is, a very powerful driving force. First of all, we want to offer our deepest condolences to the family, and we want to say sorry to the family members and relatives if they are represented here today in any form, or if you know of the family. This is just an illustration. We, uh, we, I just want to point out Behind this story is the issue of shame. We do not want to make you feel unnecessarily more burdened than you already feel. But what drove 14-year-old Benjamin to take his life? Was it the guilt? A fearful expectation of criminal punishment? Or was it the shame? The shame that he felt that he could never expose his friends in school again? Or perhaps the shame that the family would have to endure? We would never know. Unfortunately, what we do know and are familiar with is this culture of shame that a lot of us grew up in. Many of us are immersed in a culture of shame. In fact, the entire storm phenomena works only because of shame. That's why there's a saying in Singapore, I'm not sure how many of you know this, be careful, watch your actions, later you cannot storm. <laughs> right? Without shame, the entire thing of storm, entire phenomena of storm will collapse. Because gossips thrive on shame. And shame is often used as a weapon against people, from young kids all through one's adult life. 
Let me give you, give you some examples. For example, we say to young children, Boy, ah, girl, ah, you better don't run around naked. Shame, shame. Sounds familiar? Or perhaps for others, we might say things like this. Shh, would you believe it? They just got divorced at 65 years old. Or other examples to the teenagers. Hello, why can't you do better in your studies? All your cousins are scholars, but you can't even pass your exams. Or for those who are more of age singles, for example, they may say things, Wow, already 40 years old, and still you're not married? Or in the, in the workplace, another example, Hey, you see Miss Tan over there? I heard she got into an affair with the boss. That's why she's being promoted so fast. Or something that a lot of us heard when we were growing up, Boy, a girl, you better study hard, or else you will end up being a road sweeper. Now, sidetrack a little bit. This last statement implies that being road sweepers uh, is a very shameful profession, when in reality it is not. It is an honest, decent paying job. Why are we despising people just because they are lowly skilled? When an entire generation is taught that being a road sweeper is shameful, is it any wonder then that entire generation of Singaporeans avoid labor-intensive industries and only want high-paying office jobs? More importantly, as Christians, we need to understand that if we discriminate against people of low pay and only honor those of high pay, then I'm sure we have a lot to answer to Jesus when He comes again. Because every single human being is created in His image. Now, through these examples, we can see that shame can be a very powerful driving force in life. And many of us use it knowingly or unknowingly. But the truth is, it's a powerful driving force, but it's a horrible master. It can keep people in line, yes, no doubt, but it can also drive people to great depression and even suicide, as in the case of 14-year-old Benjamin. Besides shame, there are two other forces that are very powerful drivers but horrible masters. Perhaps you might be driven by them. And they are guilt and shame and regret. Together, these three form some kind of unholy trinity. Shame, guilt and regret. They drive us to do many things that we do in life. Think about what, why are you doing what you are doing, whether at home or your workplace or for your children. A lot of times we are driven by these three. Shame, guilt and regret. And many of us know, I believe, how terrible this tree can be. In 14-year-old Benjamin's case, while he has not been found guilty officially in the courts of law, he probably feels the shame of being taken in for questioning by the police, feels the shame that the family will have to endure, and perceived shame can cause people to do crazy things, whether it's real or not, whether one is genuinely guilty or not. Now you see, usually if our conscience functions well, one feels both ashamed and guilty when a sin is committed. And if the sin is serious enough, usually sometime later on we will live with great regret. Sounds familiar? I think we all understand this. And this is normal because if you don't have a conscience, we usually describe the people as shameless. If they keep doing the wrong thing and they keep doing it without any shame, we call these people shameless. And so, by right, it is a normal thing to have our conscience kick in to feel, to feel ashamed and guilty. But too much is horrible and really bad. And I think we all know how terrible it feels to be stuck in shame, guilt and regret. Did you do something wrong with your hands years ago that you are still living in regret until now? 
Did your feet rush into something too hastily and brought about a financial downfall? Did you say something wrong to a loved one? And until now, there has been no reconciliation. Or did you fail to do the right thing when you had the opportunity to do so? Keeping your hands in the pocket, keeping your feet locked, keeping your mouth zipped when you had the power and the opportunity to do something right? You see, if you're honest, it is very likely that all of us, at some point or another, have not used our hands, our feet, our mouths rightly. And we live with some amount of regrets today. And that includes me as well. So you see how our hand, our foot and our mouth have gotten us into the disease of shame, sin, guilt and regret. As I said, to be fair, God put that conscience in us in the first place so that we might not keep on sinning and doing wrong. If you have no conscience and you have done wrong, and you keep doing wrong, it's called shameless. And so God put that conscience in us in the first place to let us know that shame and guilt is the right feeling that should result whenever we sin. And regret, I think, is a legitimate response in a world that has gone terribly wrong. Just look at Adam and Eve, for example, in the story of Genesis. After they ate of the forbidden fruit, their conscience kicked in. And immediately they felt ashamed. And so they went to hide themselves behind the bush. Of course, I'm sure they knew very well that they were guilty. Yet, when God confronted them, they pushed the blame to each other. Adam blamed Eve, and Eve blamed the serpent. But in the end, God, as the judge knows, that both of them, both Adam and Eve, are equally guilty, and he pronounced the judgment, casting them out of the Garden of Eden. Now, did Adam and Eve regret their decision? I'm sure they look back with regret for the rest of their lives. One sin cast out, cast them out of the garden of, to the, of the garden of Eden forever. Talking about regrets, I think none of us can beat the kind of damage done. They probably thought to themselves, "If only I didn't, their work wouldn't have been so laborious. If only I didn't, then childbirth wouldn't be so painful." They live with regrets for the rest of their life, and so do we. All of us live with regrets. By the way, have you ever asked why God wouldn't allow Adam and Eve to eat of the tree of life after they had fallen? Well, that's because if they had eaten of the tree of life immediately after having eaten of the fruit of uh, knowledge of good and evil, of sin, they would forever be living in a state of sin. Imagine this. I've eaten of the fruit. I'm now a sinful person. And if I were to eat that fruit of life, I will forever be living in sin. And that's worse. And so, God cast them out so that they will experience death for themselves. Because if they were to die, then one day, God will be able to raise them up, resurrect them in a brand new, sinless body. And so to some extent, death is actually God's mercy. Unless we die, we will not know the power of the resurrection. In fact, if you read the account in Genesis 3 carefully, you will see God as the provider, as the giver, the merciful one. He covered up their shame by providing them with clothes in the first place. And one day, God will send the greatest gift of all. That's why we are here this morning, on Good Friday. God will send His very own Son, Jesus, to die on the cross, to pay for our sins, to wash away our guilt by His blood, so that whoever believes in Jesus might no longer live in regret forever. Friends, this is the good news of Good Friday. 
Good Friday is good because we have a God who died to take away our sin, our shame, our guilt, and turn our regrets into hope. God is in the business of cleansing and restoration. I'm not sure how many of you could see the dancers wearing their t-shirts earlier, but the words that they wore represents the life that we have as Christians, people who are restored, redeemed, loved. This is what Good Friday is really about. Here is the God we have who takes away our sin, our shame. Let me give you a few examples. In biblical times, it is an extremely shameful thing for a married woman not to have any children. Think of Abraham's wife, Sarah. She felt so ashamed that eventually she had to get a maidservant you know, to conceive on her behalf. Think of the prophet Samuel's mother, Hannah. She was praying, praying fervently in the temple. Think of Elizabeth, that is Mary's cousin, the mother of John the Baptist. She was of an old age and she was barren. And all of them were in shame, in those days especially, because they were without children. But the common thing was all of them cried out to God. And God came through and blessed them with children, despite their circumstances, despite their age. I have a good friend from school, it's a real life testimony now, whose, friend, uh, whose wife had a miscarriage the first time they con- uh, she conceived. And because of the trauma from the journey, I think some of us understand how difficult it is to lose someone in miscarriage. They didn't try for another baby for some one to two years because they're just not ready to go through the trauma again. They're just wondering whether the, the bad thing might happen again. And then one night I had a dream. In my dream, I dreamt I was talking to this friend of mine. And as, as I was talking to him in my dream, Suddenly, I found myself declaring to my friend, this year, God will remove your shame and be the lifter of your head. Oh, I woke up stunned. Stunned like vegetable. Huh? What was that about? Was that really a dream from God that God was trying to tell me about something about my friend? And so the next morning, I sent him a text message and I asked if they were trying for a baby again. And to my pleasant surprise, he said, hey, you know what? My wife is indeed pregnant and you are the first person to find out about it. Actually, it's not me. God was the first person and God told me about it because it was still in the early stages. And you know, in the early stages, usually people do not like to announce, not so much because it's pantang, but because uh, from a medical point of view, in the first three months, if it's successful, the, higher, the rates of survival are much higher. Right? Genetic defects and so on and so forth will cause miscarriage usually within the first three months. And so he hasn't told anyone. But the point was, God truly is the lifter of his head. My friend and his wife. God is the lifter of our heads as well. He wants to remove all our shame. And I'm not just talking about people who are barren here. Although I think uh, from uh, Amokyo's point of view, we have a very successful track record. Many of those of you who come to us for prayer, for conception, I think over 90%, I believe, have conceived. That's very high, you know. Answer prayer, 90% is extremely high percentage in case you do not know. And so, that's a very good track record we have here at Amokyo. But it's not just limited to those of us who are trying to for a baby. We face all kinds of shame. All kinds of shame. But God wants to be the lifter of all our heads. Like I said, at some point in our lives, we all know how shame robs us of life. We all know how we feel defeated. We cannot live life properly, how our lives are so-called sucked up from us because we are in shame, sin and guilt. But God wants to be the lifter of our heads. He experienced shame on our behalf so that we might no longer need to feel ashamed or be ashamed. By the way, did you know that the Romans invented crucifixion as a tool of great shame and humiliation? It wasn't just a a great tool for torture. 
it was also a great tool for shame. First, they would strip the criminals, possibly even removing the undergarments. I tried to search on the internet for a naked so-called Jesus, but I can't find it. I think all of us try to revere Jesus, right? But it is possible, very likely, that they were completely stripped. Can you imagine that? Completely naked on the cross. That in itself is already extremely shameful and humiliating. Secondly, the process of crucifixion is also a very humiliating process because the victims will be screaming in pain every time that they try to take a breath. Because of their posture, the only way they can breathe is to pull themselves up through the pain that's going through the, the arms, pull themselves up, scream in pain in order to breathe. And every time they breathe, they have to scream in pain. Can you imagine the horror, the shame, the humiliation that it puts the victims through? Third, if that's not bad enough, the Romans were really cruel. They will place the crosses at strategic road junctions, at places where there was greatest heavy human traffic flow. In our time, maybe we will be putting that cross up at Amokyo Bus Interchange or Amokyo MRT, where human traffic is the greatest. Why did the Romans do that? Because they wanted to warn the people, do not offend the Romans or this will be your fate. And so the cross is a great tool used by the Romans for great humiliation, to bring about the greatest shame possible. As you will see later on in the scripture text, as they are put out on the cross, Jesus will receive taunts, mockery from passerbys. Of course, in Jesus' case, uh, in fact, in those days, most of the criminals will be left to hang on the cross for several days. That's why if you read the Gospel's account, the Pilate was surprised. Eh, how is it that Jesus died so quickly? Because in those days, normally, because they are not uh, tortured beforehand, they would be left hanging on the tree for several days. That intensifies the shame and guilt, uh, shame as well. But in Jesus' case, because they have already tortured him, humiliated him publicly, before sending him to the cross, he died within six hours of his crucifixion. So as I read to you the scripture text, I just want you to take note of the humiliation that Jesus went through. Luke chapter 23, reading from verse 33. Luke chapter 23, reading from verse 23. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divide up his clothes by casting lots. See, they give up all his clothes. The people stood there watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. And then the soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there heard himself insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and save us. So you see, even in this very short account, we see how Jesus, though he is God himself, experienced the most humiliating of shame when he hung on the cross for you and for me. Even when he did nothing wrong. He hung on the cross like any other criminal, yet he was in fact guiltless. He was shamed and humiliated, but he was not guilty of any crime. Listen to the other thief on the cross. He said, Don't you fear God? Since you and I are under the same sentence, we are punished justly for what we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Friends, Jesus was shamed and humiliated 
on our behalf. He died for you and me. If you want to know why sin is so horrible and why preachers have to keep preaching against sin, you don't have to look very far. If you want to know the extent of the horror of sin, you only need to look at the cross. Because sin crucified God. Why is sin so horrible? Because it will crucify the very Son of God Himself. This Good Friday, I only have two messages. One targeted at the majority of you, Christians, those of you who call yourself believers, followers, disciples of Jesus. And the other is targeted at those of you who do not yet know Jesus, you don't call yourself Christians. And so for the first group, those of you who do not yet call yourself Christians, you do not know what Christianity is about, you want to find out more about Jesus, I'm sure you understand, as we all do, as human beings, that shame, guilt and regret sucks the life out of us. Right? It's true. And all of us experience it. Now, there are basically two ways to deal with shame, guilt and regret. Number one, you either live with them, you continue to be defeated, continue living in shame, or you choose to deal with them, allowing God to overcome them in your life through His power and His grace. Now, if you choose to continue to live with your head bowed down in shame, even though I'm telling you, God can take away your shame, if you choose to continue living in shame, there is nothing much anyone can do for you. I can't do anything for you, neither can your friends, other believers, or even God Himself. So you must, first of all, open your heart and your life to God for Him to do a work of miracle in your life. And if you are in this category, I must say this to you, shame can take away your life. Literally. As in the case of 14-year-old Benjamin, as in the case of Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot was the disciple who handed over Jesus over to the authorities. He betrayed Him so-called. He was so overcome by shame and guilt and regret that he committed suicide. Judas Iscariot thought to himself, Oh no, I'm so horrible, I can never be redeemed. And so he went and hung himself. And so I'm pleading with you today, almost really pleading with you, appealing to you, don't believe the lie that you cannot be redeemed. Do not be like Judas Iscariot. There is a way out, there is a way of redemption through the Christ, through the cross, through Jesus' blood on the cross. Don't believe the lie that you are so worthless, even though you have committed heinous things in your life, God can be the lifter of your head. Let Jesus save you. Let God be the lifter of your heads. Do not be like the people who live with regret after they witness the death of Jesus. When all the people who were gathered to witness this sight, verse 48, says they saw what took place, they beat their breast, and they went away. Presumably, they lived their life, the rest of their lives with regret because they have done something horribly wrong. They have accused an innocent man. They have hung him on the cross. And they thought they would never be redeemed. And so they walked away. Friends, do not be like them. Today is an opportunity for you to turn to God and let Him be the lifter of your head to redeem you and to remove your shame and your guilt. Now, of course, some of you might be thinking to yourselves, I don't need God to solve my problems. I can overcome my own shame. I can overcome my own guilt and regret. I will work something out. I will work hard to solve my own problems. If that's you, you say to, you say to me, Pastor, I don't need God. I say to you, actually, God doesn't need you too. But He chooses to reach out to you because He is our loving Father. My son Joash just ran out. 
He's uh, without his shoes today because I drank out at six something in the morning and I forgot to wear his shoes. But anyway, when he was two to three years old, once he was uh, at the age, you know, they tried to be independent and he was trying to wear shoes on his own because he wanted to be independent, as I said. And he said to me, Papa, I don't need your help. I can do this. I can wear my own shoe. And I was thinking to myself, yeah, you say you don't need me. I don't need you too. Certainly, I don't need him, right? But I continue to stand there because I'm his father. I love him. I care for him. And I know that he will need my help. And sure enough, after a while, after he tried but failed many times, he said, Papa, help me. I cannot do it. And so, of course, I gladly and willingly help him. But it's the same with us, isn't it, with God? We say to God, God, I don't need you. Thinking that we can do everything by ourselves. But the reality is that we cannot. But God continues to stand there as our Heavenly Father, opening His arms to us, not because He needs us, but because we need Him. You see, there are some problems that we cannot solve on our own. There are some medical conditions that even doctors have no answers to. There are some relational conflicts that money cannot resolve. There are some work challenges beyond your control because it involves multiple parties. And now we live in a world where we face terrorism. We do not know at any point in time when the terrorist attack might happen, even here in so-called safe Singapore. Do you think you can really control and solve all the problems, your own problems? That's a very naive view. It's impossible. Yes, there are some problems that God expects us to solve on our own, because He has given us a, a mind, our hands, and so on and so forth. We are supposed to solve certain problems on our own. But there are some problems that we can never solve, even as a human race. And we need God to help us. And so I plead with you, do not be stubborn. Don't think to yourself that you can solve the problems of sin, shame, guilt, and regret by yourself. Let God be the lifter of your head. And finally, some of you might think to yourself, Christianity is just a crutch. All religions basically offer a crutch for life. And I don't need a crutch. Now, if that's what you think, I tell you, that's not true. Because in Christianity, we don't offer a crutch. We offer life. Because dead people don't need crutches. Dead people don't need crutches. They need new life. And that's the essence, the message of Christianity. We're not coming here to give you advice. We're proclaiming you the way to life. Because we are dead in sin, shame, guilt, and regret. But Jesus, Jesus, HFMD, Him for me died. Him for me died and for you. He died on the cross. He bore our shame. He cleansed our guilt. And He wants to give us life. Dead people don't need crutches. And so if any of our friends tell you, ah, Christianity is just a crutch, you tell them no. We're not a crutch. We're a resurrection center. We need new life. And dead people need new life. So come to God for life. If you think that Christianity is just a crutch, part of it is your own self-effort, part of it is God's effort, you will surely fail. You need to recognize that you are first of all dead in sin. You cannot save yourself. Dead people cannot save themselves. They are dead. You need someone external to come to give new life. And only when you realize that you are completely dead and you confess the need for a saviour, then will you receive the new life. 
If Christianity was only just a, a crutch, then Jesus didn't have to die. He could just cut off his limb. But no, he gave his life to show us that only life can give life. Because sin is so serious, because the consequence of sin is death, we need a Savior. Only His death can bring us back to God and bring us life. The scripture says in the same passage in Luke chapter 23, verse 45, And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when He had said this, He breathed His last. Jesus died so that we might be restored in our relationship with God, our Heavenly Father. The tearing of the curtain temple, uh, the, uh, curtain symbolized that the way to God is now wide open. That's why the curtain was torn into two. Jesus breathed His last so that we might breathe our first as newborn spiritual sons and daughters of God, made alive by His Spirit. So friends, in this category, if you are not yet a believer, I want to tell you that the offer by Jesus to the thief on the cross also stands for you. The thief said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. The thief acknowledged Jesus. And what did Jesus say? Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. The same offer stands for you today. If you do not yet know Jesus, this is his offer. If you acknowledge me, I will acknowledge you. And from today onwards, you will be with me. Secondly, for those of you who, are, who call yourselves as Christians, I have a challenge for you. I have a challenge for you as well. In the book of Hebrews, it says, chapter 2, verses 10 to 11, I'm reading from a more children-friendly version, so to make sense of this text. It says, God has made everything. He is now bringing His many sons and daughters to share in His glory. It is only right that Jesus is the one to lead them into their salvation just because God made him perfect by his sufferings. And Jesus who makes people holy and the people he makes holy belong to the same family. And so Jesus is not ashamed to call them his brothers and sisters. Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. The question is, are we ashamed to call him our brother, our Lord? Are we ashamed of the gospel? Do we dare to tell others that we are Christians, that we are followers of Jesus, that we are His disciples? Do we dare to live our lives according to Christian principles, even though it might mean possible disadvantage? You see, we worship a God who took away our shame. We worship a God who gives us new life and hope. We worship the King of the universe. We have this wonderful privilege. How can we be ashamed of this God? Surely it behooves us not to be ashamed of Jesus and the gospel. Surely we must, as Christians, proclaim Christ with our lives and with our lips in everything we do to all we meet. Some of you sit here today, especially, I don't know whether in the Asus Hall, if you came late, some of you here are, uh, today come to church only a few times in a year. Perhaps God is speaking to you that it's high time that you start taking God seriously again. And come regularly as an act of devotion to Him. To join a Christian discipleship group. To follow Jesus more closely. Recently, I'm reading this book entitled, Why Revival Tarries by Leonard Ravenhill. And here are some of his writings that God used to shake and stir me, even as a pastor, a believer for some time. I'll just give you some quotations. It's not on the slide, so listen carefully. 
Poverty stricken as the church is today in many things, she is more stricken here in the place of prayer. We have many organizers, but few agonizers. Many players and payers, few prayers. Many singers, few clingers. Lots of pastors, few restless. Many fears, few tears. Much fashion, little passion. Many interferers, few intercessors. Many writers, a few fighters. Failing here, we fail everywhere. And so this was God's message to me in this season of land. Can you grow? Can you watch and pray deeper in prayer? There must be an area in your life as well, as fellow believers and Christians, that God is speaking to you. Will you stand up and count the cost and follow Him? And this uh, author, Leonard Ravenhill, continues with a few other quotations. He says, That which tries modern churches the most troubled the New Testament church the least. Our accent is on paying. Theirs was on praying. When we have paid, the place is taken. Of course, we thank God, you know, we have paid for this place. But notice what he says. When they prayed, the place was shaken. <laughs> wow. Have you prayed? He continues, Ah, we love the old saints, the missionaries, the martyrs, the reformers, the Martin Luther, John Bunyan, Wesley's, Ashbury, so and so forth. We will write their biographies, we will read about them, we will reverence their memories. We will do anything except imitate them. We will not go like they went. We cherish the last drop of their blood, but we watch the first drop of our own. And finally, almost every Bible conference majors on today's church being like the efficient church. We are told that despite our sin and our carnality, we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Alas, what a lie. We are efficient. We are efficient, alright, but as the efficient church in the book of Revelation, we have left our first love. We are peace in, but we do not oppose it. This is a hard message but it's for those of you who call yourselves Christians, disciples. In these last days, God is looking for people who will watch and pray. But people who will not fall asleep or fall into temptation. Fall asleep in a sense, you know, praying consistently. Not, not that you cannot sleep forever. But people who will live wholeheartedly for Him. If you are a believer, do you hear this call? So today I have shown you both the challenges and the comforts of following Jesus. Christian discipleship is not a bed of roses. If you ever think that is so, then I think your Christian discipleship is seriously flawed. It is not a bed of roses. There are challenges of discipleship. But I think, and I think those of you who are Christians will agree, that it is far better to have challenges and trials following Jesus, obeying Him, than to live forever without God in a life filled with shame and guilt. And that's the difference. It's not easy being a Christian, I must tell you up front, in case some of you are you know, not yet uh, believers, and you think, oh, Jesus is so easy, just come to Him and that's all. It's not so simple. When you say the prayer with us for the first time, it's only the beginning. You learn how to be a disciple, it's not easy as a disciple. But I'm telling you, it's far better to be a disciple suffering for Jesus than to be one without God living in shame and guilt. 
at least in this side, I never or seldom had to deal with the issues of shame and guilt and regret. I can go to bed and wake up without feelings of guilt and shame over me. That is priceless. That is priceless. And so to conclude, let me summarize. We are all familiar with shame, guilt and regret. We all know how it can rob us of life. Perhaps it is robbing you of life at this very instance. We know how diseased our hands, our food, our mouths can be. We know the horrors of sin, shame, and guilt. But Good Friday is the demonstration, God's demonstration to us that we do not live in shame, guilt, and regret any longer. We have a Savior and a Redeemer. Don't believe the lie that God cannot save you. He can. It doesn't happen instantly, but He will transform our lives gradually and remove us from shame, sin, and guilt. Jesus died for you and for me. Him for me died. Him for you died so that we might live. He bore our shame. He bore the price for our guilt. He paid the price and He is able to turn our lives around and give us new hope. That's the message to us this Good Friday. Let us go to God in prayer. And so as I've said, I have two challenges today. The first is for those of you who do not yet call yourselves Christians and you want to believe in Jesus for the very first time. Later on, we'll have people standing around in the sanctuary, either wearing a dark blue shirt or a red shirt. If that's your desire, uh, later on, I invite you to just move to any of them and they will brief you and explain to you a bit more what Christianity is about and let them have the joy of leading you to become a Christian for the very first time. But I also have a second challenge. And that is for the majority of us, those of us who are Christians. The call is for us not to be ashamed of Christ, not to be ashamed of the Gospel, but to stand up for Christ. And so now I want to issue a common call to both groups. If it is your desire to acknowledge Jesus as your Lord from this day forth and for the rest of your lives, would you please stand? This is for both groups. Whether yourself a Christian or not yet a Christian, if you say, Jesus, I acknowledge you as my Lord and Savior, this day and for the rest of my life, let the rest of my life, would you please stand? Let us not be ashamed of Christ. Stand up right now for Christ as a symbolic representation that you will stand for Him, that you will bear His name in your homes, at your workplaces, at your schools, at your army camps, wherever God has placed you, let this be your commitment to the Lord. And so as you stand, I'm going to give you a moment to say your own personal prayers to God. What is your commitment to Him? Tell it to Him. Let me give you some time to do that. Yes, I'm not so Calvary.
Let me now invite uh, the altar ministers, prime ministers to come forward or to the side. These are the people who, who can share with you the good news. And so if you are in the first category, people who do not yet know Jesus, but today you want to receive Jesus and know Him and taste the joy of being a Christian without shame and without guilt, feel free to approach any of them. Space are start out, you can also go along the house to the side. You don't have to come to the front. I'm trying to make it slightly easier for them. They can come up from the side and approach you from the side. And so this is the first call. If you want someone to lead you in prayer to receive Jesus for the very first time, I invite you to come up from where you are standing right now and approach any of these. Okay, wearing uh, dark blue shirt, red shirts. They'll be glad to rejoice with you and lead you to know Jesus for the very first time in your life. The next call is for those of you as Christians. You want some ministry time, you want the Lord to minister to you. Even though uh, Pastor Anthony says God can remove your shame and guilt, but yet you still feel the burden of shame and guilt and of sin. You want a breakthrough in your life. We invite you to come also now to the altar ministers, prayer ministers, and let them pray specifically for you. Let them know maybe a situation that you have in your life. The prayer ministers are trained to listen to God for a prophetic word. God can say something to you. And so if that's you, you're already a believer, you're looking for a word from the Lord to help you overcome sin, shame, guilt in your life. I'm going to give you some moment as the, the team worship team leads us in a time of worship. Feel free to just come to any of them. We'll be glad to pray along with you. the benediction in a very short while just before that if you need someone to pray with you after service again the prayer is to be here to minister to you if you want to leave after the crowd uh, after the crowd leaves you come forward that's fine as well uh, same time we have also prepared refreshments so if you are able to stay you can join us for a time of fellowship as believers in the Lord let's now receive the benediction Romans chapter 8 says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Lord, we thank you. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you bore our shame, our sin, and our guilt on the cross receive this message of life that there is now no condemnation no condemnation because we are in you Lord Jesus. Help us to recognize that you are the lifter of our heads. Help us not to be ashamed therefore of you and of the gospel. Fill us afresh with the Holy Spirit that we may be bold witnesses to your resurrection power. And until the day until we come on Sunday to celebrate the resurrection Continue to be with us, Lord. So, friends, as you have entered to worship, depart, to serve, to bear the name of our Lord Jesus. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and grant you His peace. Amen.